Today's story is called I Will Give You Chesil Beach. Those of you who have been to this rather wonderful location will know that it's the kind of place where very strange things might happen. I'll give you Chesil Beach. My husband and I retired to Dorset. It is by far the most agreeable of the English counties, although it does have its rough side. Poole and Weymouth in particular are full of people who are clearly struggling. The scenery is evidently no protection against the ravages of modern life. Poverty, alcoholism and street drugs do battle with heritage and natural beauty. Everywhere one might live is tainted to some extent, and one never wants simply to move to an idyllic setting with no energy or youth. We settled then on the outskirts of Dorchester, a pretty enough town in itself, and gateway to many delights. Our relationship had faded, as all marriages do in my experience, to a gentle tolerance, with little in the way of animated conversation or the exchange of new ideas. No matter, we were not expecting our taking up residence in Dorset to revive our intellectual engagement with each other, to stimulate our very occasional sex life, or radically to challenge our view of the world or ourselves. We did, however, explore certain hobbies and habits, and nurture them along, so that the days passed without rancour. I took to reading poetry, and my husband continued his interest in the rural churches of England. And so we pottered, while also enjoying drives in the country, and long walks, as thankfully we were not yet physically decrepit. One location of which we became particularly fond was Chesil Beach. No matter how much time one spends there, its singular nature remains a source of fascination. I have no interest in the arcane geographical debate about whether the beach is truly a tombola or merely a barrier beach which has rolled landwards. It is a stretch of the English coastline that holds its wonder in all weathers. A long bank of shingle that lies more or less parallel to the mainland, the beach stretches from the island of Portland in the southeast to Abbotsbury, past the Fleet Lagoon, and on to West Bay in the northwest, eighteen miles up and along the coast. The pebbles of the beach gradually decrease in size as you move from the potato-like offerings near Portland to the much smaller toy marble ones near Bridport. However, at either end you do tend to sink into the moist stones as you walk, and you must never try to rush your way along the beach, but rather to conserve your energy as best you can. We enjoyed parking the car and slowly making our way to the top of the beach, walking for a few hundred yards or so, and then flopping down on the shingle, spreading out a blanket and partaking of a few cheeses and pieces of fruit washed down with a crisp white wine. The notion might take us any day of the week, weather permitting. One of the compensations of old age is that the reasons for not drinking alcohol become more or less redundant. Of course, one must watch one's blood pressure and one's cholesterol levels and so forth, and it is no doubt prudent to try and protect the failing abilities of one's mind, Nonetheless, one is also aware that one is no longer preserving oneself for the future, or for the sake of anyone else. What little there may be left of life may then, with a good conscience, be lightly dappled with Chablis, my favourite beverage. My husband had no palate to speak of, and would just as readily have downed the Liebfrau Milch of his heyday, so it was up to me to select the snacks and waters of quality with which to bathe our tolerant neglect of each other. One late spring day, when the sun was coyly exposing and then covering itself, and the wind still delivered the occasional piquant nip to prevent complacency, we made our usual way to the beach. The conversation in the car was comfortably unthreatening and devoid of content, 
We held each other's hands as we mounted the bank of stones, but this was for physical support rather than affectionate display. He was a little bit more breathless than usual, and so we decided to arrange ourselves on the shingle slightly nearer to the car than we would usually have done. It made no difference. The view and the ambience were as glorious as ever. We sat, we nibbled, and we quaffed. A sleepy contentment settled upon us. Just out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something protruding from the shingle. I thought it was a stick, and decided to pay it no heed. But every so often it appeared to be moving, not just gently swaying in the breeze, but almost beckoning somehow. I tried to ignore it, but as these things will, it became unignorable, and to stop my curiosity in its tracks, I didn't want to be curious, in fact I wanted nothing to intrude upon the glazed indolence of the day, I reluctantly went to investigate, leaving my husband to stare out to sea with that look of absolute vacancy he had perfected over the years. I stood above the item in question, and I saw at once that it was not a stick. It was a finger, a human finger, poking out of the beach and teasingly, or so it seemed, demanding my attention. My first response, as I reflected later, should have been one of alarm. Most fingers that appear to gesture from the stones of Chesil Beach might be expected to belong to dead bodies, that is, if one had not previously witnessed a game of hide-and-seek or some such. But strangely, I knew that this was not the finger of a corpse or a disconnected digit of any kind, and that is why I had no compunction in reaching down towards it and grasping it with my own hand. As I touched the finger, so a whole hand emerged from the stones and clutched mine. It was a light touch, more of a greeting than a request for help. I held the hand, clearly that of a man, and pulled gently. First, and I suppose obviously, an arm revealed itself, and then, as I kept pulling, a whole man rose up from the pebbles. He was completely naked. He was young and beautiful, and it all seemed, at the time, the most natural thing in the world, to haul from the stones a perfect new human. I was most delighted with myself. For those first few moments I had no idea that is, I simply did not consider that there might be consequences. I gazed at him. There he stood on the beach, the breeze softly playing with his hair. He smiled at me, and I began to realise, not with fully formed thoughts, but with warm and glowing instinct, that my life was about to change. He took my hand in his and invited me, I think that was the gesture, to lead the way. And where else could I lead but back to the rug, back to the Chablis, and my husband? I really don't think, as I look back, that any words were uttered at all by any of us during what followed. I take this as a sign of its inevitability, of there having been no alternative. I don't mean to suggest that we are simply the victims of the events that unfold in our lives, that we are passive and must only endure what happens without any agency of our own, but on that particular day it was clear to me that I was obliged to follow, that I was a participant in a plan that had already been decided. I did not object at the time. I had no sense of resentment or any suspicion that I was being manipulated. No. I embraced my fate, very literally, as will become evident. When we arrived at the scene of the picnic, my husband turned to look at us, and I am certain of this, there was no surprise in his eyes. He was saddened, surely, but he raised no objections to what happened. He did not resist. My new friend, my new pristine, glowing and naked friend, gently raised my husband to his feet. Then he led him carefully down the slope of stones to the sea. He did not hesitate, and my husband followed meekly. 
he was guided with solicitous attention step by step down the shelf of pebbles, and there he stood ankle-deep in the chilly brine. He looked at me as I stood above him on the great broad back of Chesil Beach. He knew it was time. We all knew that simply it was time. He was softly, sweetly, tenderly pushed, and he toppled over into the lightly plashing waves. And he was pushed again, and in no time at all he was far out, just a speck that bobbed and struggled briefly before dipping below the waterline, forever. Well, you can imagine, I had not been expecting such an occurrence. I was shocked and surprised and touched by a profound melancholy, but I cannot pretend that I attempted to stop the process. I will not deny that I was also immensely excited, and frankly relieved by what I had just witnessed. My new friend climbed gracefully back up the beach. He stood in front of me, the smile on his face more radiant than before. Suddenly he snatched up the bottle of Chablis and drained it. The bottle had still been half full, as my husband and I were slow drinkers, and made a point always of savouring our wine, properly chewing it and letting the mellow, chiming finish resound around our mouths, the kiss of Chablis. Equally suddenly, when he had flung the bottle away, he swept me into his arms and proceeded to stride purposefully along the beach back to where we had parked the car. He set me down outside the driver's door and waited for me to unlock the car and get in. When I look back, I am certain that he was offering me a chance to drive away alone. But I did not want that. I opened the passenger door for him and ushered him inside. He accepted and sat himself down next to me, just before I turned the key in the ignition. He reached across, took my face in his hands, and pressed his lips to mine. He tasted of honey and salt. It was difficult at first to integrate him fully into my life. During the time we spent together, a period of absolute bliss, he never learned to talk. Or perhaps I should say that he never chose to talk, for I am still not certain whether he was unable to vocalise or merely wished to bypass the clumsiness of human speech. While I had absolutely no objection to his remaining naked within the house, I did feel it incumbent upon me to dress him for our excursions outside. In the beginning we caused a scandal in the locality. Happily, as my husband had no friends or relations of his own, inquiries were only made in a half-hearted way about his whereabouts, and as he had only been present in the consciousness of the neighbourhood in the vaguest sense, his memory soon faded and he was lost to the world. Daniel, as I christened my lodger, lover, and friend, was, however, of the greatest interest to the community in which he found himself, at least for a few months, until we became habituated to the stares and the comments and the sniggering disapproval, and until they in turn petered out. Country folk have little to amuse them, so even Daniel's extraordinary beauty and the shocking contrast in our apparent ages could not keep their disapproval at boiling point for very long. Oh, how those days were filled with joy! I knew it couldn't last forever. Daniel did not seem to get older at all, whereas I gradually grew more frail, despite the elixir of love and our taking full advantage of the outdoor glories of the country. We explored every nook and cranny of Dorset, and we must have walked for miles in rain and shine. We visited all of the lovely country churches, and we strolled down the ancient hollow ways, along Roman roads and up the steep hillsides where pagan chalk totems were carved into the slopes. We consumed cratefuls of Chablis. My encounters with people apart from Daniel became very infrequent. I was intimate in the broadest sense with no one other than he. It was exactly what I wanted. Having been a more or less solitary soul for most of my life, I now wished only to cherish the days I spent with him, and cherish them I did. 
I never took him for granted. I never mocked his taciturnity nor his innocence. Every day I gave thanks, in a strictly non-religious way, for having been blessed with the times I reveled in with Daniel. Eventually, inevitably, we found ourselves back at Chesil Beach. I cannot say how many years had passed since Daniel had first revealed himself to me. I did not count the time. We walked, carefully treading the stones along the vast bank of the beach. It was a glorious day in midsummer. There was a light breeze. The sky was milky blue. The sun danced between transparent clouds. We disrobed. It was the natural thing to do. And we slowly descended to the water's edge. Daniel took me in his arms and strode out into the sea. Lovingly, tenderly, he lay me upon the rippling tide and set me free to drift. I remember, and of course they were my last memories, how he returned to the shore and buried himself in the pebbles, leaving no trace, no suggestion of disturbance. Daniel had become one again with the ancient spirit of Dorset, or whatever strange power had sent him to me. There was no ill will on my part. I did not resent or complain, as the soothing current bore me out and then down into the cool, obliterating depths. I smiled as I drowned, knowing that life had been so sweet. Thank you for listening. Please share. (laughs) 